Do me a favor, everyone. Take a deep breath for me. Thanks. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, extra, I'm extra nervous for this one. One of the reasons I'm extra nervous for this one is that I should have brought this message last week, but I had COVID, so I couldn't. And so I had a week to think about it. <laughs> and if, if you know me, you know I was bringing a message that I had researched within an inch of its life. <laughs> I had read 15 books. I'm not joking. I read 15 books. I'd, I'd sourced different words, found different meanings for different words. But some, at some point during the last week, the Holy Spirit has just lit a fire in me. Wow. And all that research just, just got knocked out. <laughs> So I'm, I'm stood up here pretty raw right now because I like research. That's my safety net. And I'm, I'm up here without a safety net. So let's see how it goes. Um, if you've been following us lately, um, you know, we've kind of been drawing some inspiration from a guy called John Mark Homer and his book called Live No Lies. Don't worry if this makes no sense to you. Um, he, one of his insights is that we have an enemy. Positive message right out the back for you. We have an enemy, and he lies. And he tells lies that plays to distorted desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Daniel 3 is a really good example of that, and that's what I'm preaching from today. So... I'm just going to give you a quick sort of bird's eye view of Daniel 3. I'm not going to do it justice. So please, please, please have a read of Daniel 3. Even if you're sat here and you're not really sure about following Jesus, you're not really kind of convinced of this Christian thing yet, have a look at Daniel 3. You will find it somewhere. You probably sat next to a Christian, so they'll probably just give you a Bible. But even if they don't, or you're too shy to ask, Look on your mobile phone, you'll find it. It's free. He'll even read it to you. So, bird's eye view of Daniel 3. There's a king called Nebuchadnezzar. He's the most powerful king of a generation. And what he does is, he sets up a huge idol. Hebrew word is salam. It's um, like an image. Think of a statue. Um, on something called the plain of Jura. It's still there today, you can Google it. Um, it's flat desert kind of terrain. Um, I, I, my kind of Bible notes um, said that the, the statue was about as tall as Castle Hill. So it was pretty, it was about five meters shorter than, than Castle Hill. So it's a huge, massive idol stuck in the middle of a flat surface. And he goes on to basically say, everyone who's everyone needs to come bow down and worship this thing. Or, I'm going to chuck you into a fire. This, this is classic, classic kind of intimidation tactics. It's that I want you to do something, so I'm going to get you to feel fear. I'm going to get you to feel a bit of anxiety. Because once you feel anxiety, 
I can manipulate you. Classic sales tactics, if you've ever noticed, you will watch the six o'clock news, which will make you feel anxious, and then there will be adverts that come after it that sell you something to soothe that anxiety a little bit. These are classic tactics. So, that's the bird's eye view of Daniel 3. Um, Trevor spoke two weeks ago about being moulded by God as the sculptor of our lives. And this is what, this is what being a disciple means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Dallas Willard's words, slight step down from Trev. Um, <laughs> spiritual formation in Christ is the process through which disciples or apprentices of Jesus take on the qualities or characteristics of Christ. So if, if you're a Christian, if you're a committed disciple, apprentice of Jesus, hopefully, bit by bit, step by step, you're trying to take on the characteristics of Christ. You're trying to become slightly more Christ-like. It's a difficult task, isn't it? Um, so as we become more Christ-like, just holler at me for a second, was Jesus liked by everyone? No, he was pretty hated, if I'm honest. He was crucified. People were conspiring pretty much from the get-go to have him killed. So therefore, as we become more like Christ, we're going to face opposition. It's just, it's going to come with the territory. It's actually, I mean, be careful how far you push this metaphor, but it's actually encouraging sometimes if you're facing opposition because it means you're doing something right. Winston Churchill once said, a man not without flaws, um, if you want to make no enemies in your life, do nothing, say nothing, have no opinions, just do nothing. If you do anything, you're going to make some enemies. So let's make them for the right reasons. You know, sometimes these enemies are going to be more obvious. Sometimes some of us might live in a society or a context or a community where um, following Jesus, the opposition is going to be more obvious, probably more literal. You know, one of the reasons I'm stood here is because half of my family had to flee from political and racial violence. You know, I'm not necessarily talking about that context here. Sometimes the opposition isn't as obvious as that. Sometimes the, ov- the opposition is more subtle. Sometimes it's more internal. If any of us have ever done the EHS course, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, or any of us have ever been in therapy, then you might have heard of something called the inward journey. What the inward journey is, is when you start to reflect on who you are, your family of origin, the culture and context of which you grew up. As you do that, if you're following Jesus at the same time, at some point, you're going to meet opposition. There's going to be something in you, whether it's a wound, psychological or not, you picked up from childhood. It's going to be an emotional trauma that you've picked up along the way. Opposition's going to come if you're following Jesus. 
So in the face of opposition, scandals, abuse, or oppression, what are we to do? Daniel 3 maps this out really, really well. And it goes on to describe a term I'm going to borrow from somebody called John Tyson, who's um, a pastor in New York. He calls this the beautiful resistance. And this is what I'm going to try and describe to you. I'm I'm taking some creative liberty of what John Tyson describes it. Um, And this this is the whole thing. My notes now go completely out the window. Um, And what's even amazing is the word that Ali just brought to us, because I'm going to talk about anxiety. And before Ali, Wendy was up here talking about practicing something. And it was just like, oh. I can't get away with this. I've got to say it. So I was thinking, the beautiful resistance, what's the core element? What do we need? If we're going to offer up a beautiful resistance, what's the main thing we need? And what kept coming back to me again and again and again and again is joy. We need to act from a a place, a position, a posture, and a heart of joy. Joy is the antidote to fear. Joy is the antidote to anxiety. And um, hard, hard thing, you know, I'm just full of positivity today. Um, here's, a, here's a bit of a tough truth, you know, what the modern prophet Jay-Z would call the hard knocks of life. <laughs> In life, sorrow is guaranteed. Joy is not. Joy has to be crafted. It has to be worked. It has to be cultivated. It's there. It's ready for you. Because God is a God of joy. He delights in you. He was, he was in bliss the day he made you. When he looks at you, he delights. He's full of joy. It's there. It's just waiting for you. We need to tap into it. Now, I know some people are feeling maybe the way I would be feeling if I was hearing this. That's well, that's good, that's all right for you to say. And I know because lots of us out there are genetically predisposed to not feeling joy. You know, some, some of us win the genetic lottery. Um, my wife's one of these people, smiling at me. She wakes up in the morning, she's happy. She's good to go. <laughs> Not when Eden woke up 60 times last night. But, but she has this natural disposition of joy. Some of us have that. We were born with that. It's, it's, it's genetic. I'll scan your brain later and show you if you want. Um, some of us, me included, aren't. I was born with a disposition of worry, and anxiety, and suspicion, and skepticism. But that's not the way it needs to stay. And if I'm going to offer the beautiful resistance, that stuff's got to go. It's got to go. And joy, so joy, I was, I was really, really thinking about this. What joy basically is, it's the purest form of gratitude. It's the purest form. You see something, you delight, you feel joy. It's just the purest form of gratitude. Gratitude is just another way of saying, look for, the, look for what God is doing in your life. If you struggle with doing that, look what he's doing in other people's lives. I remember I was once sat with a friend um, in an Italian restaurant 
And you know how in Italian restaurants, they, when it's someone's birthday, they bring out the candle and they sing, uh, and it's, it's awesome. Um, and it was somebody else's. We didn't know them. They were the other side, they were the other side of the restaurant. And this um, young boy, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, um, it was his birthday. So out the waiters come with the candle and the cake, and the boy's so joyful, he's like clapping and jumping. And my friend now, who I was with, also had a little boy. He was about five. Um, and he started jumping on his seat and clapping. And I was a bit like, what's, what's going on for you here? Like, it's, it's not your birthday. <laughs> we don't know these people. <laughs> They're over here. You're embarrassing me, I'm an introvert. Um, and he was like, I know, I know it's not my birthday, but it's his. It's his. And it was just vicarious joy. It was just seeing people joyful makes us joyful. It's really hard to have a heart position of fear when you're joyful. I'll be honest, sometimes I haven't had time to have a coffee before I come to church and I'm not particularly joyful. But it's hard to maintain that heart position when I'm amongst you lot because you're so joyful. Here's a quick um, tip about the brain, stepping into my comfortable zone here. It's virtually impossible for you to feel both anxious and joyful at the same time. Your brain can't do it. It can't hold both those things. We know that because we scan people's brains and I show them things that make them anxious and certain parts of the brain lights up. Um, amygdala, hippocampus, trick, don't worry about that. Um, and then we show them things that make them feel grateful. Their children, their cat, their whatever. And that part of the brain shuts down. And another part of the brain lights up. It won't do the same thing at once. But your brain, some of you are going to hate me, some of you are going to love me when I say this, your brain is basically like a spreadsheet. <laughs> it will look for what you tell it to look for. And some of us have been living in anxiety and fear for a long time. I get you. I get you. And because we, because we do that, what you're saying to your brain over and over again is, I'm worried about that. Gosh, I really am worried about that. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about that. And it's just picking out all the things all the time to feel worried about. You can reverse that. You can flip it and tell it to look for something else. And to, this is not just, you know, this is not just group therapy. I, depending on what Bible translation you've got, the phrase, do not be afraid, is mentioned around about 365 times. It's one for every day. When something's mentioned that many times in the Bible, God's trying to make a point. He's trying to tell you something. Fear is corrosive to the spiritual life. And the antidote is joy. So, one way to cultivate gratitude and joy is to, um, Wendy kind of said it. This is amazing. Um, go for a walk. Pick out the things that make you feel joyful. Whether it's the way the sun feels on your skin, whether it's the way the flowers look, whether it's the autumn colours, whatever it is that makes you think, oh, wow. 
cultivating that feeling of joy. I'm going to share something a little bit deeper. Um, there was a guy called St. Anthony. Um, he was around when Christianity was just about legalised in the Roman Empire, but things were starting to go a bit dodgy. But, you know, power had started to mix in and he didn't like it very much, so he ran off to the desert. Um, standard healthy emotional response. Um, and while he was there, he wrote a book. Um, and it was called Talking Back, a handbook for fighting demons. Now, you don't see a book like that on the bookshelf and don't pick it up, do you? <laughs> a handbook for fighting demons. Um, and what Talking Back was basically about was trying to encourage people to learn scripture. Learn it off by heart. So that when an, an anxious thought or a fearful thought comes to you, you talk back at it. You know, a really easy example for you. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Easy to remember, easy to talk back to. So... Yeah, no, it's gone out the window. So, once you've cultivated that feeling of joy, you're then ready to take a stand. You're then ready to offer a beautiful resistance. And part of that beautiful resistance is maintaining your integrity under pressure. When the King Nebuchadnezzar comes along and says, bow to my idol or I will throw you in the fire, if you've cultivated that feeling of joy, you have resistance against the, oh gosh, that feeling, that, that feeling that shakes you to the core. It's easy to be joyful when everything's okay. But sometimes you're going to face opposition. Sometimes it's going to be quite aggressive opposition. You know, I, I can't spend too long on this because um, Katie actually preps people before they come to our house, not to mention the French Revolution. <laughs> because they, she knows that I will give them a three-hour lecture on the French Revolution and all the ins and outs. What the French Revolution, though, <laughs> is a really good example of is losing your integrity under pressure. You know, there was an idea of the bourgeoisies, rich people, um, were taking advantage and abusing the poor. Sound familiar? Um, and there was a righteous anger that kind of developed from that. But it turned into a disaster because everybody lost their integrity and it just became a fight. Everybody loses. The phrase, kill them with kindness, is a seriously underused phrase in conflict resolution. If you've got a joyful heart, even when you're challenged, even when something's not fair, even when it's not justified, but you're acting from that position of joy, you're gonna be able to maintain your integrity even under a lot of pressure. To use a quote from the previous pope, um, gosh, it's quite liberating to be able to use a quote from a pope. In a, it's nice, isn't it? Anyway. Um, this is what I said. Truth is vital, but without love it's unbearable. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. So, maintaining your integrity under pressure. Let's see how... Uh, the three friends did it in Daniel. If we could bring up Daniel 3, 16 to 18. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from it, your majesties. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set. Is that not the politest rebellion you've ever heard of in your entire life? It's from that position of joy and assurance in God. Chuck me in the fire if you want to. My God can save me. But even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to do it because my connection to joy, as Wendy was saying, when we're speaking in tongues and we have that direct line, that's my joy. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, the free friends, they don't jump on the internet and start a Twitter war. They don't make an angry YouTube video and whip up a crowd. They just say, no. They don't get angry with him. They, they, they actually show respect yeah. for him. So here's the final point. Once we're offering them a beautiful resistance, where we have a joyful heart, we can maintain our integrity under pressure. The thing that underpins all of that is total faith in God. Another way of saying that is total dependence on God. You know, particularly in our society, we've been lied to. We've been lied to by secularism that says you are an individual and you can stand on your own. It's a complete lie. You can't. Just think back to lockdown. How did you do when you were on your own? Most of us struggled. I know I struggled. We need people. We need each other. We need God. Do you know, the, the Greek word that gets translated as faith in most of our Bible comes from, a word called, comes from the word pistis. Um, careful how you say that. Um, the word pistis could just as easily, it's one of those funny words like ball means lots of different things. You could have a ball or play with a ball. Um, it could just as easily be translated as loyalty or dependence. Um, and the three friends had pistis. They had faith. If we bring up Daniel 3, 24, 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, this is after, they've basically said, no, we're not bound to your idol. So he's... Nebuchadnezzar's lost his head and chucked him in the fire. Um, then Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisor, weren't, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There is so much to unpick there, and I can't unpick it all. <laughs> But here's the bottom line. They had total faith and total dependence on God. I actually came to faith through an alpha course. Um, and Nicky Gumbel, the guy that um, made alpha, if you don't know about alpha, Google it after, um, says this about alpha. Alpha is perfectly designed to fail 
unless God shows up. And that's, that's part of what lit the fire in me this week, is that I want to live a life that is perfectly designed to fail unless God shows up. This preach was perfectly designed to fail unless God showed up. I basically scribbled out everything I wrote. And that's the message that I want to leave you with. Cultivate a feeling of joy in your heart, deep down in your soul. Be joyful. Rejoice in a God who rejoices in you. He delights in you. Once you do that, takes practice but once you do that you will be able to maintain your integrity under a lot of pressure once you're able to do that you're able to say whatever you do whatever you say whatever the circumstances I'm not going to argue with you my full dependence is on God and that's the beautiful resistance so I'm going to transition. I took probably a little bit more time than I should have then, but I'm not sorry. Um, <laughs> another thing that fear does and anxiety does is it drives us apart. You know, you'll, you'll, know, you'll learn fairly quickly with me. I'm an introvert. So the minute I feel uncomfortable feelings, I want to go and run and hide and read a book. That's my go-to. Fear and anxiety drives us apart. We're better together a really, really good example of another way of offering up a beautiful resistance is sharing communion together. When you're you're taking communion this week, I want you to come offering a beautiful resistance, a resistance against everything in in our world at the minute that wants to drive you apart, wants to put you in the left wing camp or the right wing camp or, or, you know... Vaxxer, anti-vaxxer. All this stuff that's trying to drive us apart and push us apart. We offer it the beautiful resistance. From a position of joy, maintaining our integrity under pressure, our full dependence is on God. Let's come to the table. Let's share communion together in a beautiful resistance. Thanks, guys.